Um, hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast all about films in which we attempt to talk about film within the confines of a particular theme that changes from episode to episode. I am Joe Gastineau and joining me as always is a mighty fine blog's Ed Davis. How are you sir? I'm very well. Uh, how are you on this fine day? I'm pretty good, although there appears to be uh, every emergency service vehicle under the sun going past my window. Not sure if the uh, listeners at home picked that up, but I'm quite scared. It's uh, good to hear that that hasn't changed since yeah, well, the country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was always a feature of uh, of our podcast when we recorded them together. It sounded like I lived in South Central, um, <laughs> but I don't. Um, this week we are talking, uh, we're, we're launching in fact, um, a multi-part podcast. We are attempting... Um, to chart the uh, many ages of man on f- and woman, of course, on film. Um, we're going to try and do this in four parts, uh, charting all the ages of, of man slash woman um, on film and in film. Um, and we are starting, appropriately enough, uh, with uh, childhood, and that includes depictions of childhood, uh, child performances, child actors, uh, childhood memories of film, and all of that shit. So, um, in, you know grandest of traditions let's start at the very beginning ed when you were a kid and you were watching films what kind of childhood stories were you attracted to uh i was attracted to um disney films primarily um mm-hmm. so you know sort of bright colored musical stuff but the stuff that kind of stuck with me over the years was uh stuff which was which terrified me um mm. And particularly anything to do with uh, becoming an orphan, that was mm. something. I read a lot of Roald Dahl books as a kid, and yeah. one of my greatest fears growing up was that my parents would go away to a zoo and get eaten by a rhino, which is how mm. um, James's parents die in uh, James and the Giant Peach. And mm. um, that basically, in my, I was I was drawn to any film that was about uh, a family in which one or both parents were dead. Um, right, because I think it was my greatest fear uh, that I'd get taken away and like be sent to a a boarding school, even though I don't know if they or, or, or you know like a, a a Victorian era kind of like workhouse, or <laughs> right. um, or be sent to like live with a relative who up until that point had like been proven had seemed perfectly nice, but was really just waiting for my parents to die. So that they could reveal yeah. themselves to be like a wicked person who'll make me uh, clean the stairs with a, a mm. small brush. Um, yeah. So I think those those are the kind of things. On the one hand, it was like you know bright, shiny, happy colours, and on the other hand, it was like uh, confront your fear of being alone. Um, mm. so, so you know, I think my my childhood was a bit odd. Is what are I'm you saying. all right, Ed? Uh, so I'm really worried about you. <laughs> Have you got over this now? This kind of a, a fear of orphanings and also rhinos. Yeah, I think it was once. Uh, once my younger sister had turned eighteen, it was mm. fine. Uh, once you know, when I got to eighteen, I thought, okay, that's good. You know, I've got through that. And once yeah. she turns eighteen, that means I don't have to care for her. Right. So you know, it's like once once you're at that stage, it's kind of like, okay, I think you can't really be considered an orphan uh, once mm. you're an adult. Um, which, which is actually a, a, a plot line in an episode of Kirby Enthusiasm. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I think. Uh, 
that that at uh, once I reached that stage, I think I, I, I mellowed a little bit on the whole um, orphan thing. Although I do still get drawn to any film that's about sort of a, a, a parent-child relationship or, or ones of sort of broken families and stuff, which is very strange because my family are all alive, healthy, and together. <laughs> so I guess I just liked seeing uh, this thing, which I liked experiencing something I feared greatly, you know, through the protective uh, pr- protection of the screen. Wow, ah, wow. Well, for me, it was far less kind of grueling and realistic. <laughs> that um, I was very much drawn to um, those those films growing up in the 1980s, uh, as I did, uh, drawn to those kind of um, more adventurous kind of fantastical films such as uh, The Goonies and um, uh, there was a film called The Explorers, which, uh, do you know that one? It's got Ethan Hawke in it and they kind of go into their shed and go into an alien spaceship and, so and Joe Dante fly film, away. Isn't it? Yeah, that's the one, yeah. And... Uh, also, things like Flight of the Navigator was a massive kind of film for me when I was young, and I was very much drawn to those kind of fantastical kind of um, uh, flights of fancy because I think I lived in such a boring provincial town, <laughs> and nothing would ever happen. I never would have to save the goon docks. Uh, I mean, there was a dock in Ipswich, but like you know, it was just kind of grim, uh, kind of smelt of barley. Uh, it wasn't <laughs> particularly exciting, and no one really wanted to save it. And then it was you know later on developed into kind of like Ponzi properties that no one bought so that's the realistic um, spin on the Goonies in uh, in Suffolk where I grew up um, but yeah those those were definitely the types of films that, that kind of I saw were you, were you slightly too young for those to kind of have that type of impact on you? Um, I think so because I was born in 86 so I right, didn't really so I really started getting into sort of watching films sort of in the, the tail end of the 80s and sort of the, the early 90s so I think uh, my film watching tended to miss out a lot of the 80s because it was either films from earlier than that that we, like my parents liked like um, you know or like Star Wars which is like a film my dad loves and I loved as well because I watched it all the time as a kid uh, and there, and whatever was sort of new but there was sort of like mm. a 10, 10 or 15 year gap I think for a long time like the only film from the 80s that I really remember having seen that wasn't a Disney film was Robert Altman's Popeye um, right, because it was it was filmed in Malta and my family's from Malta, um, so I think that so you know there's just a whole decade which I then sort of caught up with uh, at a later date, which is why I don't really have a huge amount of um, uh, of sort of nostalgic feeling towards The Goonies, which is not mm. a film that I I care for uh, particularly. Um, yeah, I, I was just a few I was a few years younger than them, and I was just like, there's got to be some kind of shack on the outside of town that's got like a thing that goes on and a treasure map someone I've got to, I spent a lot of time hanging around attics as a kid mm. waiting to try and find uh, a secret treasure map but mostly it was like you know old old records and, and you know Christmas decorations which is disappointing yeah there was a lot of that as well What any film about a secret world or you know something you know a, a tunnel or something that would lead you to some sort of fantastical place or, or which would signal the start of an adventure you know you know have an appeal to me but for some reason uh, the main thing that i was kind of watch is things that had a bit of weird darkness to them mm. i think i was um, a very serious child <laughs> deeply serious uh, terrified of orphaning child um until you just mentioned it there you talked about star wars which is kind of picked out as being a, a kind of archetypal kids film but a good one um, there aren't any kids in it are there no there's not a, a single child um, 
except maybe like maybe in some of the big crowd scenes like on Cloud City I guess but mm. mostly it's adults fighting a big space war uh, and you, you don't really see that many um, young kids uh, on Hoth you know it's not a good environment to raise a kid in uh, no on a secret military base yeah but it, it, I think it's kind of weird that a film that kind of kids identify themselves with so much has got no kid to identify with in it until the Phantom Menace came out and then we are faced with what is possibly the most grating child performance of, of recent memory with uh, Jake Lloyd as uh, young Darth Vader yeah I think that's very interesting I don't I, 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 as a kid I don't really remember watching that many films about kids I remember watching lots of, I mean, maybe The Wizard of Oz, I guess, is probably the only one that really sticks out, but usually, like, again, sort of in Disney cartoons, it's lots of, um, sort of adults, really, are kind of the main characters in a lot of Disney films, like, you know, Snow White, obviously, Beauty and the Beast, the only child in it is a teacup, um, yeah. you know, there's a Aladdin, there isn't a kid in Aladdin, you know, so I think, I think there's just something, I think you like the idea of adults in danger because they're a little more there's a certain degree of safety to it like if you see a kid in danger there's uh, not a that you obviously feel a great deal of vulnerability for them because you're a kid as well and you'd be vulnerable in that situation whereas mm. seeing like Luke Skywalker being chased or, or Han Solo being chased by stormtroopers you think they're adults they they can probably handle this yeah but it but it's um, still exciting speaking of kids in peril um, first film I ever saw in the cinema on my own, uh, Home Alone. Um, oh, that would be the big what, exception. That was definitely yeah. a film I watched as a kid that had a kid in it. Yeah, I mean that was uh, and like there was a kind of glut of those after Macaulay Culkin became kind of uh, you know a famous name as it were. Um, but I mean that film's got everything, hasn't it? But like what appealed to me most about that film was not the kind of you know shooting burglars in the face. It was more the what do you do when you're on your own. Um, you can eat whatever you want. <laughs> you can make a massive bowl of of like M and M's and ice cream, and that was what you'd eat. And and that is kind of how I eat when my girlfriend goes out of town. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit yeah. like Home Alone. Um, going back to Jake Lloyd, um, they do say it's the old kind of uh, adage is never work with um children or animals, but children, it, uh, it's a very very tough. Uh, casting job isn't it because a bad child actor can really throw a film out can't it yeah because I, th- I think also it's just really hard to deal to act to, to kind of get a good performance out of a child because you can't if you're, if you're having a problem with an actor as a director mm. you can like maybe not be cruel to them but you know you'll be more forceful in like saying what it is that you know you're going to do wrong you what they're doing uh, incorrectly or which isn't suiting what you want whereas with a kid there's a limit to how much you can scream in their face yeah you know, there's uh, which is um, not at all you're really not because <laughs> you know their parents will go after you and it's unlikely for that to happen you know um, I doubt Shelley Duvall's mum was kind of coming up to Stanley Kubrick and saying be nicer to my daughter so, so I yeah. think he probably and you know he could torture her as a result um but you know, I think that, that that with kids there is like there's only a certain amount a point to which you can actually get a good. And also, you know, their attention spans or their abilities to kind of handle sort of the strenuous works of many takes and odd hours is, is necessarily quite limited. So mm. you kind of have to treat them more gently and 
just kind of work with what you can get from them. Mm. So, I mean, a lot of child actors uh, never actually make it, do they, into kind of, they don't transition into kind of being, well, adult actors, but um, there's quite a few notable exceptions. Um, any spring to mind for you? The one that one that kind of uh, I always think of when I think of child actors done good, which is weird, because I don't think I've ever seen a film with him in when he was a child actor, it was Kurt Russell, who was in, you know, um, well, he's in a lot of TV in the kind of 60s and stuff, but he started off his, his film career with a, with a film with Elvis, I believe, and then went on to play Elvis a bit later, which is a kind of a weird thing, but um, do you think that child acting now is, is tougher than it used to be? Um, I think it might be tougher in that uh, you, the the criticism of a bad child performer is probably going to be more vocal in the internet age than maybe it was, and maybe a bit crueler than it was in the old days. Mm. Um, but also, I think uh, the culture of kind of like pushy manager parents has probably grown exponentially in that time as well. So I think that there's there must be rafts of uh, of parents who you know uh, didn't make it as actors or, or dreamed of becoming rich or, or view their kids as sort of their meal ticket um, mm. who think that the best thing to do is to get them on sort of the treadmill of uh, you know becoming a jobbing actor and hoping that hoping they hit it big um, which there definitely is kind of a subculture of um, and I think that maybe in the earlier days before there were such things as like, before kind of child acting was uh, as kind of regimented as it now is in that regard. So there was probably it was probably a sense of like, oh well, you know, you don't have to be famous. You can go off and you know get a job and be a lawyer or get married or whatever. But now it's like, you know, everyone has to be famous, otherwise they're not gonna you know be of any sort of value or worth to society. Yeah, I mean, there's also the kind of the pressure of celebrity now more than there was. I mean, it's crazy. I think a lot of that will come from Macaulay Culkin, didn't it? When he was, you know, hugely famous, was starting to be paid millions, you think, and then, you know, his parents wanted to get, a, you know, a slice of it. And did he end up divorcing them in the end? Yeah, uh, I can't remember what the actual term is, but yeah, it's that thing where Emanci- emancipation. Yeah, that's it. He got emancipated from his from his parents and. Uh, yeah, kind of retreated from public life a little bit as a result of that. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the prototype for that was, was I guess, was Drew Barrymore, wasn't it? I mean, you know, she famously kind of sprung sprung to prominence in E.T. when she was like five or six, maybe? She was really young, wasn't she? Um, but then she then kind of imme- almost immediately fell into kind of drink and, and, and kind of drug problems and then kind of uh, came out the other end... Um, in the kind of the 90s as a, as a kind of a bona fide Hollywood star, uh, you know, a bankable actor, and also later on a producer and, and writer and director. Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of people who kind of fall into that trap and just never really get out of it. I think, you know, uh, I don't know about his relationship with drink and drugs, but um, Haley Joel Osment, I think, is kind of someone who fell into that. You know, he had a run in the sort of late 90s and maybe the early 2000s where he was in you know some very notable films not least of which the sixth sense um and you know he was really good in them and then just he never made the leap you know from promising child actors to sort of genuine um adult sort of like uh performer mm. not, I mean, not not an adult performer which sounds like something else <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that sounds an, pretty an, bad an actor in legitimate films who isn't you know we're not talking about the guy from uh, a christmas story here um, no 
who did become an adult performer. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, someone who grew up to be a real actor. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, I just look. I'm just looking at kind of Haley Joel Osment's kind of CV because uh, obviously he'd been in bits and bobs before, but he was Oscar nominated for. Um, for Sixth Sense and then he kind of did a few bits and pieces but then since then it's been a lot of video game voice acting um, and the last time I saw him he was in the advert for It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia in which they um, trailed the new season by pretending they were going to recast all the roles with uh, actors such as Andrew Dice Clay Haley Joel Osment and the rapper Exhibit um, <laughs> but they actually did bring all of those people in to perform famous scenes from it and he made an excellent Mac uh, if you've seen the series but he was not only did he look a bit like him but he also uh, nailed the accent and everything but it's peculiar and I, I always wonder whether it's um, whether it's the kind of just the lifespan of that and kind of how good they are or whether it's their kind of choice to drift away I mean, you get people like Natalie Portman who who kind of burst onto the scene um, in a lot of things and then, then stepped away from acting and went back to school and you know got a degree but then chose to come back to it and then uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt did much the same thing didn't he I believe yeah he uh, he uh, you know went to he, he sort of disappeared sort of from the late 90s, you know, when he did sort of uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, and he may have done a few sort of smattering the things in between, and then kind of re-emerged with Mysterious Skin, which mm. was a very different film, but, you know, he, he took a few years away from it, and I think probably that probably benefited him a great deal in that, you know, he was able to live a life that wasn't in the constant Hollywood grind and was able to kind of come back and say... I don't want to be defined just as the guy who was, you know, on a sitcom about aliens. Yeah. I want to be someone who can, you know, pick and choose the work that I want to do. Yeah. Uh, and he's done all right on it. He has done okay. Yeah. Um, in contrast to the kind of the more fantastical films we were talking about that we were attracted to uh, as kids, um, what kind of films stand out to you now the kind of maybe the slightly more darker or the, the slightly more kind of esoteric looks at, at childhood now as an adult what kind of films stick out for you as being uh, of note um, I think uh, one that I didn't watch as a kid which is a surprise because it seems to be the case that everyone watched this kid in school was Kez mm. uh, Ken Loach's Kez which is a, a very bleak depiction of childhood um, yes would you, would you say yeah, I a saw it for the first, the first time two days ago, and I was kind of stunned by how bleak it was. Yeah, uh, which I think um, captures sort of the, on, on one level, the sort of the, the idea that, you know, passion and, you know, a love of something can help you sort of transcend your sort of origins, as, mm. as you know, training the Kestrel does uh, in, in Kez, whilst at the same time, kind of depicting childhood as uh, kind of horrible in some respects, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, school. I mean, like, I, I moved around a lot as a kid because my parents ran pubs and, you know, you'd always be the new kid at school and you'd always, you know, have to go through the, the tricky thing of, of making friends and sometimes that didn't work out terribly well. And so I think as an adult, whenever I see a film which is about kids... Uh, having sort of a bad time of it, not in a you know horribly violent or, or abusive sort of way, but just in that way that you know sometimes you just don't fit in at school or, or you it, it, things just aren't that great. 
Mm. Uh, I I really respond to them because I because those ones tend to have sort of a ring of truth to them. Mm. Do you think that that those films which takes a child's alienation and puts it in a kind of almost a fantasy setting, stuff like um, Pan's Labyrinth or Where the Wild Things Are, um, or Matilda, I guess, would fit into that. Um, do you think that uh, for people who are interested in that kind of who can connect with those feelings of alienation or, or kind of having a difficult uh, experience uh, relate to more do you think as adults yeah I think so I think um, when you've got a bit of distance from it mm. like, as a kid I can't imagine wanting to watch um, uh, Pan's Labyrinth well mm. A because you know a guy's face gets caved in with a bottle oh that's grim um, and then another guy gets his uh, face slashed open um, those that there's no way I really would have been drawn to that as a kid but as an adult I can really see you know the idea of wanting to escape into sort of a fantasy world um, although as Guillermo del Toro once told me everything in Pan's Labyrinth is real so you know uh, fantasy is kind of a a, a, a relative term um, mm. Uh, it's uh, you know I think you can really appreciate that sort of thing or, or in something like A Little Princess the Alfonso Cuaron film which um, I liked a lot as a kid again sort of child being orphaned thing so that crops up a lot in yeah my, in my view or or, or, or fake orphaned because she be, for a while she thinks her dad's dead but he's not spoilers but right. oh man a, a book from the 1920s um, <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, but I think uh, Matilda's a very good one. That was one that I watched a lot as a kid and really um, responded to because, uh, again, you know, that was uh, as a kid. I had I wasn't like a lonely kid. I had friends, but I also was always I think a little bit on the margins because I'd always be the new kid and I didn't have the uh, years of sort of like relationships with the people that I would become friends with. You know, mm. like the years of shared experiences. So I was always a little bit kind of of an observer, and I think that sort of the idea of sort of a child like that who's a little alienated and a little odd, um, having sort of magic powers, uh, mm. was you know appealed to me sort of greatly. And obviously, you know, the Roald Dahl connection, I was always going to love it. I, I used to watch Matilda um, over and over again. Mara Wilson, who played Matilda, is another uh, example of someone who kind of drifted away from acting. Um, yeah she uh, was in those films and then went away and studied at university and now is a playwright I believe uh, ah, right, very okay. very active on uh, Twitter ah. um, do you think that Where the Wild Things Are is a, is a good um, uh, example of that kind of thing where if, you, if you'd have watched that film as a kid you, you would have been a bit like huh? but watching it as an adult you're thinking man that's a great film about being a kid I think I probably would have appreciated it as a kid but in an entirely different way I yeah, think, the, a, the dirt ball fight would have been uh, is very very appreciable as as a kid. Yeah, I think you would have kind of not really understood all the dark dark stuff in it, where you know everyone it's all really fractious and uh, everyone's kind of arguing and not really getting on mm. that well. Uh, but you know the the sort of the three wheeling adventure of it would be uh, would obviously really appeal to you as as or appeal to me as a kid. But like as an adult, when you realise that it's essentially about the the sort of the, the conflicting emotions of a kid who's uh, afraid of the future and slowly coming to sort of terms with the, the changes in his life. His mum finds uh, a new sort of man to replace his dad and stuff like that. You know, it, it, uh, that, you know, sort of strikes more of a chord because you can understand 
having lived through sort of childhood and you know the sort of the heightened sort of conflicting and strange emotions of growing up you can really see uh something sort of quite beautiful in, in where the world things are mm. yeah i think as a kid I'd th- I, if i watched it as a kid i'd be com- slightly bummed out by it because it's quite a melancholy Oh, it's very film as a as an overall thing. I think it's a really great piece of work where the world, where the wild things are. Yeah, I think it's my favourite Spike Jones film um, yeah. of the three. Um, I saw a film recently uh, which I think um, is a great film about being a kid um, from kind of both points of view. Is um, uh, Kid with a Bike? Have you seen that? Yeah, the Darden Brothers film. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really kind of know. <laughs> I didn't want to say what's it all about, eh? kid with a bike um but like i didn't i don't i'm not really familiar with the darden brothers work particularly um what, have they, what else have they done that's kind of what's their kind of big film uh their big one was a film called they had a few but i think uh the sun was the one of the ones because they've won the palm door a few times show offs um and the sun uh was about a uh a young I, i'm gonna I think this is the one. Their film, their films that often have like one-word titles, so it's kind of easy to get them mixed up. But I think the Sun is about a uh, is the one about a young man whose girlfriend has a baby, and mm. he is sort of very young, sort of like late teens, not young, ready to be a father yet. And to escape the responsibility, he takes the baby and sells him to uh, gangsters. Wow. And then is surprised when his uh, girlfriend is angry at this mm. uh, and tries to buy the baby back. But in order to buy it back, he has to start doing jobs for the gangsters. And it's a very uh, it's a very tense film because essentially he has to start committing crimes in order to kind of make up for this unbelievably awful thing that he's done. Imagine the, that exact plot that you've said, but as an Adam Sandler comedy. <laughs> <laughs> that could be the greatest thing of all time. Um, but no, the uh, kid with a bite is is um, a really. Uh, I think it makes a very interesting, like um, kind of companion piece to Kez, um, in the in both senses. The central character is someone who doesn't really have any kind of hope for them. I mean, in Kez, obviously, at least he's got a family unit. In Kid with a Bike, the the main character is in uh, a kind of, I suppose, a kind of kind of reform school for kids no his dad doesn't want anything to do with him he doesn't know who his mum is and a chance encounter with a with a hairdresser kind of she kind of takes him in on weekends and stuff and it goes from there and and i I don't think that like since until i watched kez i'd felt a real sense of kind of peril uh watching this kid kind of go through his life and every time he kind of went to take a wrong turn or something i was just kind of so petrified for him uh as a character and kind of really scared that like you know he wasn't gonna make it i think this all comes like from the fact that my missus is a teacher and Mm. you know i hear endless tales of kids who are basically just fucked from the off because their family situation so hard and everything and and you know that's exactly the feeling i had towards the the kid in um kid with a bike that's a great turn as well from that that kid he's amazing yeah um and just a correction the film i was talking about was the child Ah, the child. They, they did do a film called The Sun several years mm-hmm. earlier. That's why I got confused. Um, but yeah, no, the, the kid with the bike is um, it is is really really great. It got described as sort of a minor Dardenne film, but I think I don't agree with that at all. I think it's yeah, as you say, it is 
in a way that their films are, or the films of theirs that I've seen, it is unbearably tense without mm. being in any way uh, extravagant or, yeah. um, uh, you know, it's, it's basically a very low-key, um, no-frills film about, you know, it's almost cinema verite about someone's life. Mm. But the way that the, the things they choose to focus on, they do in such sort of intensity that yeah. you find yourself just kind of really caring about what's going to happen to them. That, that kid in particular, I spent—I probably spent the last forty minutes of the kid with the bike just kind of thinking, "Oh fuck, is he going to die?" Yeah, <laughs> just kind and of like, like all the way watching it, like watching it through your fingers, and not down to the fact that there's kind of tense music or fast cutting you're just like mm. watching a man in one stack uh, a little boy in one static shot climb up a tree and you're like dude don't go up that fucking tree <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst thing you could possibly do at this point um, but yeah a really great film it kind of echoes of the bicycle thieves as well um, mm. in there I don't know whether that's what they were going for or whether I'm just trying to sound intellectual I think that it's it's a comparison that's hard not to draw when you just have a film about a young child and a bike you know it's kind of it's, yeah, it's, that it's at one point gets stolen. Yeah, it's the definitive uh, film about kids and bikes. It's the bike yeah. and but the kid with the bike comes close. Uh, w- one thing I thought was um, quite interesting is uh, the sort of there's to me I think you know there's the the, the the overriding film of a lot of really great kids films are uh, there's there's kind of two themes which are uh, sort of in opposition which I think is kind of wonder and fear. Mm. Um, because on the one hand, you have um, you sort of, you're as a child, everything's new to you. You know, yeah. You, the, the entire panoply of human experience is completely open to you and, and ready to be experienced, uh, which is amazing because there's lots of things you know that, to experience. But um, I would recommend childhood to anyone. Um, <laughs> but um, at the same time, that's all daunting and terrifying. Uh, and I just wondered if you can think of. Uh, any films that really kind of um, exemplify either or both of those two things, because the one that leaps to mind is, uh, to my mind, is a film that's really a great example of that, is um, Terence Malick's *The Tree of Life*, mm. which um, is a very divisive film. I really love it, but I, I know it's not for everyone. But the, the parts of it, I went to see it with um, friend of the show, uh, friends of the show, Adam Batty, um, Alan Bianchi, and uh, Ali Bianchi and uh, Dave Holloway who uh, mm. I think you you know all of those gentlemen as well uh, I'm familiar with their work they're fine gentlemen uh, we all went to see it at a press screening and I remember walking out of it Ali hated it which was amazing to see he, he mm. was, his response to it was a sight to behold but uh, the thing that I, I remember was Dave saying that um, he didn't love everything about the film but the segments of it about uh, the, the, the childhood of the main character uh, played by Hunter McCracken, uh, who's a name that is impossible to forget, um, yeah. were was about was the best one of the best films he'd ever seen. Just the childhood parts. I think that that those parts really capture that sense of both being sort of having just a complete sense of wonder of everything that's happening around you as a child, but also just like huge fear of you know everything that's lurking around the corner and sort of aging and disappointing sort of parents and things like that and I think I just wondered if you could think of any examples of films that sort of fit into either of those two themes uh, I think that um, the one that springs to mind 
Um, maybe this is just because we just talk about Malik. Is um, uh, George Washington? Oh yeah, the, the David Gordon Green film. Yeah, a, a film in which um, I really like it in a film where kids are just kids. Do you know what yeah. I mean? They're, they're being kids, and like there's like great bits in Kez, for example, where he's just he's just roaming around the countryside with a stick. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that simple joy of hitting stuff with a stick and throwing rocks and stuff. And the George Washington is is that kind of film, but it's spurned on by a kind of a deeper tragedy, an accidental death of a of a friend of the group, isn't it? Is that right? Am I, am I remembering that correctly? Uh, yeah. And it's kind of deals with that those issues of well, those big themes of of uh, death, but from the from the perspective of people who don't really understand it. And I think yeah. that's what it shares with Tree of Life is that um their the experiences of the kids in Tree of Life and I completely agree with Dave that the 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 stuff with Brad Pitt as the dad and and the, the two kind of kids is is by far my favourite bit you know of that and I can probably do without Sean Penn wandering for a doorway in the desert because <laughs> um, that's you know a bit stupid um, but yeah I no I totally agree I wonder whether we would think of it um, as being that way if it was presented on its own. Oh, uh, you mean just that segment of the film? Yeah, about any it, of the stuff around it. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of that is the contrast, really, mm. isn't it? Because there's the the youthful, the the fear and the confusion of of uh, and sort of in a sense the kind of purity of growing up in uh, as a, as a young child in sort of Texas in the fifties with the kind of cold sterility of sort of Sean Penn's character, who's you know seems to have lost all sort of um, luster for life. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, th- I think that there's um, a large part of why that segment of the film works really well for me is you do kind of see a huge contrast there, even though, really and truthfully, those two parts of the film almost don't have anything to do with each other and mm. could be separated because, obviously, Malik likes doing that sort of thing. Um, could, you, could you think of any further examples other than other than Tree of Life that, that, that do that kind of thing? I'm really struggling to think of films in which kids are, you know, are... Yeah, it's so rare to see kids in this, that situation they're in in Tree of Life. They're normally on an adventure or doing something stupid, like going to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Um, can you think of any other examples that fit that mould? Uh, one that kind of does fit that mould, um, for me, I think, would be Stand By Me. Right, oh yeah. Stand By Me, obviously it's spurned on by their kind of like, hey, let's go and watch a body. Uh, mm. Let's go find a body. Watch your body? Just yeah, sit there that's and watch weird. it. Uh, just uh, go and find this you know, dead body, which is kind of like an adventure sort of thing. But really, the whole film is just about those four kids, you know, in a lazy summer, just kind of wandering out on the railroad and, you know, just being kids and sort of making fun of each other. And it's really all about just the relationship between four young boys, um, mm. which has this kind of, you know, there's the, the, the fear of what's going to happen to if uh, Keith Sutherland catches up with them um he's going to torture them um which is kind of his sort of modus operandi throughout his career yeah um but you know really that's the 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 main sort of tension in that sort of thing is you know learning about their past experiences about their home lives about how they're all a little messed up in the head um for for you know and sort of like how they've all got their own sort of issues with their parents for for various different reasons and mm. I think that one does kind of have the sense of wonder because they're they are going out on sort of a 
prototypical sort of young adventure for young American boys, which is, you know, one walking the rails. Finding uh, a dead body. Finding a dead body. <laughs> yeah, prototypical. But, you know, just kind of like having like days to kill and just saying, hey, we're just going to, you know, go out and, and see what happens. But also they are obviously being confronted, as in George Washington and Tree of Life, they're being confronted with death in a very real sense. And, you know, a big part of, of the, the power of, of, um, of that film is the, the fact that up until they see the body, death is this kind of abstract thing that they just think, hey, wouldn't it be cool to mm. go and find this dead body? And then when they actually see it, it's just it's this kind of profoundly horrifying thing. It's interesting that both those films that you mentioned, the the um, Stand by Me and Tree of Life, are both framed as recollections of a character in the film. Yeah, I think that that's uh, also a case in, in a sense of um, the the contrast between the adulthood and the childhood kind of gives a sort of a, a sharpness to it. Yeah. Because it's not just like either one of those films could work fine as just an adventure on its own, but both of them are given such a, a melancholy hue by the fact that, you know, uh, you know that they grow up to be uh, these perhaps slightly sad men. Uh, you get a less sense that Richard Dreyfuss is sad um, mm. in, in Stand By Me, but you definitely get a sense that, you know, he looks upon this kind of period as scary and... Uh, fraught with sort of tension as it is with a great sense of nostalgia not least of which because obviously um, you know as it reveals at the end uh, the, the River Phoenix character ends up uh, getting stabbed in a, in a line at a restaurant mm. um, which obviously is uh, sadder on multiple levels uh, yeah. <laughs> given uh, what happened to him but um, I think you can really kind of see that a lot of the poignancy of those two films comes from the the interaction between the adult and child themselves mm. and uh, tell you one thing that Tree of Life does have over Stand By Me is it has dinosaurs in it yeah I think Rob Reiner left money on the table by not including dinosaurs <laughs> Yeah, Stand By Me would still be playing in theatres now if uh, if there had been dinosaurs in it yeah I, I think that um, Malik misses a trick really of not integrating those parts of the story <laughs> uh, better you know, a kid goes out smashes the window it all looks great there's some lens flare and then a fucking dinosaur turns up <laughs> that'd be pretty rad um, does um, Beasts of the Southern Wild fit into this kind of mould we're talking about I mean, that's, that's a bit more kind of magical isn't it rather than kind of wondrous I guess yeah but at the same time I think it's that magical realism thing where essentially they are giving sort of physical form to a sort of a, 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 a broader concept you know the concept being fear of uh of this kind of life-changing event which is the death of a fa- or the illness or death of a father mm. um you know and you know the the the, the contrast is drawn between hush puppies obvious kind of like uh fear of how her world is going to change with the appearance of the aurax who are meant to symbol symbolize you know the 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 coming of the end times right you, you know so i think that there what you're seeing is a um a sort of like a conflation of uh the small sort of uh very human fears of of a, a young child who's kind of struggling to kind of come to terms with uh what's happening in her her life with this kind of sort of fantastical sort of almost apocalyptic thing of these these giant pig monsters just destroying everything <laughs> in their path <laughs> Giant pig monsters, love it. <laughs> See that they they learn from uh, Malik's mistake. 
integrate the prehistoric animal <laughs> into, into the storyline. I still can't fucking work out what I think of uh, Beast of the Southern Wild. I, I do look back at it and I think, wow, that was amazing. Mm. And then, you know, within minutes, I'm like, ah, oh, that was wank. I, I rewatched it before the Oscars because um, the weekend before the Oscars, there were only two films, uh, two of the Best Picture nominees that I hadn't reviewed. Mm. And I felt, and one of which was Amour, which came to the theatre near where I live, um, like the Friday before the, the Sunday of the Oscars. So mm. I I finished work and then went out for a rip-roaring Saturday night of watching Amour. <laughs> and then uh, and wrote a review. Um, and then on Saturday I watched my screener of uh, Beasts of Southern World because I hadn't written a review at the time that I watched it and I thought I really need to give this another watch and really kind of confirm what I thought and uh, I was completely bowled over by it by the second time. I don't know why but it all just kind of really clicked with me. Ah uh, right so maybe I need to watch well I definitely need to watch it again it's definitely a film that, that kind of demands uh, a second viewing so I'll watch it in a year and uh I'll I'll keep the keep the listeners at home posted on what I think of a film that's going to take me uh, the best part of twelve months to get my head around. It's not hard to understand or anything. I just didn't know if it was good or pretentious wank. Yeah, it it very much straddles the line. I think that that the the response to it has fallen on just those two, similar to <coughs> life really. Yeah. Uh, although yeah. Are, are you, I don't think you're uh, too uncertain about your thoughts on that one, are you? What tree of life? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I actually do fall in the middle of Tree of Life. Oh, um, okay. I do. I do think that fifty percent of it, although it, it seems like sacrilegious to say I'd give that three stars out of five. Right. That is exactly how I felt about it because the bits that I liked, the bits with the, the you know Brad Pitt, Texas, kids throwing stones through windows, you know, I thought that was great. But then the other bit was like I'd accidentally flicked the Discovery Channel on, and then there was an <laughs> HSBC advert on with a voiceover, and like I didn't. I've, th- those bits just completely lost me so I literally have polar reactions to elements of the film that follow each other so I, I would have to say I'd give that three stars out of five <laughs> Terence Malick a consistently average filmmaker <laughs> making three stars because it really did I really had both reactions to it I hated some of it and I loved the other bit of it so you know law of averages and all that you know that's, uh, that's what I thought of Terence Malick because I, I do like his films generally yeah, I'm really looking forward to picking up the Blu-ray of uh, Badlands next time that uh, Barnes & Noble have their sort of uh, uh, Criterion um, sale where they do it yeah. like half price off because, uh, yeah, that film's amazing. Yeah, that's a film that I've not seen for like, I reckon I saw that 15 years ago on video. Yeah. So uh, I'm kind of looking forward to re- revisiting that one. Um, right, um, sh- before we go to waffle on about our future p- purchases at Barnes & Noble, um, are you ready for a top ten, Ed? I am. Let's do it. Top ten. Okay, so uh, what are we chosen for our top ten topic this week? Uh, we are going for the uh, top ten uh, performances by children in film. And have we got an age limit on this? Uh, I think we said it as uh, 16 is the, the limit, because then you start getting into sort of adolescence slash teenagers, uh, which uh, we'll be covering in the next episode. Yeah, you fundamentally cannot have sex with any of these children. <laughs> no, <laughs> not, no matter what country you're in, uh, it's wrong, people. So uh, what's your first uh, pick for someone we can't have sex with? 
Um, uh, no, how much we would want to. Um, <laughs> uh, Christian Bale in Empire of the Sun, a Steve ah, Spielberg okay. film, based on the uh, memoir of uh, J.G. Ballard. Um, Christian Bale is is one of the the people who um, has uh, had a somewhat successful uh, transition into adult acting. Would you say? He's done all right. He popped yeah. up in Pocahontas the other day. I watched. Uh, he was one of the voices in Disney's Pocahontas. Oh yeah, he is, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. I I always forget that. It's always weird when people like that kind of like it's like um Kurt Russell is a voice in uh, Fox and the Hound. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> um it's very very strange. Um but uh yeah, uh, Empire of the Sun is uh, about the life of JG Ballard um who as a child was uh, in grew up in uh, Shanghai um and when the Japanese invaded he was uh, taken um, he was separated from his uh, his parents and uh, taken to a sort of a concentration camp. Um, and in the film, uh, Christian Bale plays him, and and kind of it, it, it falls into a lot of the themes that we've been talking about here. Because obviously, the, he starts off as this sort of very much a child of privilege because his parents are very rich and they live in the, the English uh, part of or British part of Shanghai um, or Hong Kong, as it would be later known. Mm-hmm. may have been known at the time no, I think it was on, it was Shanghai then and uh, then you know he loses all this stuff when the war comes and has to sort of have this uh, sort of battle to uh, survive as a result it's a very hard edged film it's probably one of the harder edged um, films Spielberg had made up until that point um, in, in 1987 and uh, I think it's, a, it's an amazing performance by uh, Christian Bale who kind of embodies you know every different aspect of the character you know his sense of entitlement early on and you know the, the idea of him being this quite spoiled child um and then gradually becoming sort of uh, yeah, and being naive as well and falling under the sway of uh of people in the camp particularly john malkovich who's uh, one of those sort of this sort of vaguely sinister figure uh within the camp uh, hierarchy of the prisoners and then uh you know he uh he embodies also the sort of the spirit, the the, the will to survive, you know these terrible uh, deprivations, and I think it's uh, it's, it's a really uh, hugely impressive performance from someone who was so young, and you know it's 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 great that he's continued to be sort of like a great actor because it, it would be horrible if he was one of those kids who had done like one great performance and then just disappeared. Yeah, is it? Am I right in thinking? Because I I. Uh, when you put that like Empire of the Sun I was like have I seen that and then kind of I remembered it was on like a few like kind of months ago on ITV4 or something and I watched it and it, I thought I'd seen it as a kid but it really wasn't coming back to me so I don't think I did but um, Ben Stiller's in that as well as a kid yeah Ben, a very young uh, Ben Stiller plays like cause, um, John Malkovich and a few others they all share a hut and mm. Ben Stiller's like uh, sort of uh, sort of an underling of sorts to John Malkovich was also uh, quite antagonistic towards uh, towards Christian Bale's character. So it's very strange now watching a film in which uh, Ben Stiller is meant to be this sort of uh, antagonist. Hmm. It's, it's, those, it's very odd. Those two have really gone on, haven't they? <laughs> those two have gone on to do all right, haven't they? Um, yeah. Yeah, better than the kid who played Chunk in uh, The Goonies <laughs> um, my first choice um, I'm going to uh, you said it was a shame that Christian ba- uh, it was good that Christian Bale wasn't just one of those uh, actors kid actors who, who did fade away uh, I'm going to go with um, David Bradley who played um, the lead in Kez 
um, who kind of did fade away. He, he did become an actor and kind of had some success on stage, but then after a while, um, kind of drifted out of it and became a carpenter. But his performance in Kez is unbelievable and I think we're going to see quite a few of these um, mentioned on this top 10 um, about kind of naturalism and, and improvisation and using perhaps not uh, children who are not professionally trained um, because you get a much more natural um, kind of result really from, from uh, directing kids in that way um, and I think that you know, obviously it's a Ken Loach film, so he uses a lot of improvisation and, and non-professional actors anyway, and, and it's such a glorious fit um, with Bradley as Billy Casper um, that it just breaks your heart to watch it. Every You go through obviously everything with him. The bit where he um, uh, is talking to the class about um, his kind of kestrel kestreling falconry that's right that's the word <laughs> kestreling is the sex act you do not want to do um but yeah it's uh when he's talking about falconry you know a kid who's never had any positive reinforcement he's never actually had anything he's been interested in that is his performance of that is so beautiful and that's something that if you had a trained actor who was reading kind of scripted lines would just not work at all it would just be it would be irritating it would be stagey it would be you'd think what a precocious little twat uh, the actor whereas you know Billy Casper you want to take him home yeah and you can also see that in the scene where he discovers that his brother has uh, killed the, has killed Kez mm. because um, you know that's the sort of scene where with a kid who perhaps had rehearsed the line or a, a kid who was overly rehearsed or overly stagey about it would just fall flat you know because it'd be like you know it doesn't feel real whereas with him it's such a raw and sort of anguished sort of performance that it's it is absolutely heartbreaking especially given you know what you see of his performance prior to that and you really do get a sense of what the bird means means to him Mm. i think I, i read something i'm not sure how true it is but like apparently ken loach told him during the film um, because Ken Loach famously shoots his films in sequence Mm. Um, so the characters are literally going through everything every day in the order that that is presented in the film that I think he told the kid that at the end of the film um, Billy Casper actually kills the uh, the orchestral himself and so that kind of explains the kind of the you know the reaction he has when he finds the the body Um, but yeah it's um, yeah it's such so natural and you know so beautifully done that it's you know, it's just so raw and powerful. It's just an incredible performance. Um, what's your next pick? Uh, my next one is um, Quavenjane Wallace in Beast of the Southern Wild, which we mentioned earlier. Um, which I good pronunciation, by the way. I thought. Thank you. I was, I'm glad I was going to pick her, and I'm glad you picked her first because I didn't want to have to say uh, Quavenzahani. Oh, I couldn't <laughs> remember how you said it. It's a stupid name. Quavenjane. Uh, Quavenjane. Oh, okay. Uh, the 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 joke on SNL when. Uh, um, Jennifer Lawrence hosted was great where she sort of did burns of all the other best actress nominees at the Oscars and hers was um, hey Quavenjane the alphabet called they want all their letters back <laughs> it's one hell of a scrabble score I have to say <laughs> um, but uh, you know as we were saying earlier um, Beasts of the Wild is a you know I mean you, you and I both had mixed reactions to the film uh, mm. when we first saw it but I think we both were kind of fairly certain that you know her performance was kind of astonishing. It is know, remarkable, yeah. For a girl who at the time was six to yeah. kind of have this kind of power and, again, sort of rawness to it, uh, you know, of, of uh, 
just essentially being on screen for at least 90% of that film. You know, the only other times is when the Aurax are on screen and mm. having to convey kind of a sense of, you know, exhilaration and excitement at, you know, all of the, the stuff happening around her, uh, but also a sense of anger mm. and sort of fear, at, you know, what's happening with her dad and her relationship with her dad. Um, that it, it, she really does kind of run the gamut, really, you know, from the entire sort of range of emotions and at no point does it feel forced it doesn't feel as if you're watching sort of a stage kid who's kind of sort of learning all these things by rote it looks like she's really feeling every sort of second of her performance and i think uh the film would be just like that would be it's the sort of thing where a, a bad performance would have made that film you know nowhere near the sort of the the, the sensation that it was you know, it, it all depends on having the right kid in the actors. And I don't, I can't think of many child actors who would have been able to carry the film in the way that she does. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, just just to be kind of able to, I mean, it's difficult to say that how how much of it over this kind of very confusing thing of a a film being made with crew and actors and giant pig monsters and everything that a six year old is going to comprehend. But you never get that feeling that she's overwhelmed or daunted by anything. It's such a brave bold performance and it's as well I was wondering where the chaperone was because there's bits where she's like running around with like fireworks and flares and firing them out of hands and stuff and you know I wonder if they risk assess that yeah I think um, she's just like she she dominates the entirety of the film which uh, you would not expect from someone who's six you know to, yeah. to dominate anything but you know she is uh, she is you know just captivating and, and heartbreaking at various points throughout that film and I think it's a, it's one of those performances that you know I think is kind of for the ages in a sense uh, oh definitely although you know and I, I really do hope that she uh, goes on to sort of really great uh, great work in the future because I think it's, a, it's an amazing start mm, definitely um, I'm going to pick for my next one uh, Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver um, a performance so good that someone shot the president and blamed her. Um, but yeah, she was 13, I think, when she when she played that role? Uh, yes, that sounds about right. Yeah, so she plays a kind of a prostitute by the name of Iris, who um, Robert De Niro's character kind of looks at and kind of wants to try and save from the skunk pussies and everyone on the streets of, of New York. And um, a performance well beyond her years and there's a scene uh, I think where you take her out for breakfast and yeah. it's, uh, it's it's kind of semi-improvised and to to hold your own against someone like De Niro who like at that point was an absolute master that was prob- that was watching that generation's best actor at his peak um, is quite remarkable that that scene where they're having breakfast together and she's kind of making sugar sandwiches is she I seem yeah. to remember yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's just amazing and the, the same year she made Bugsy Malone which is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. Although yeah, but... in, in both, it's essentially her having to play a character who is sort of displays maturity beyond her years. Except in the in Bugsy Malone, it's kind of played for a laugh that all these kids are meant to be sort of adult gangsters and they kill people with uh, custom Custom eyes. Yeah. Uh, whereas in sort of Taxi Driver, it's uh, it's tragic that mm, she's there's sort no of... such fun. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, although I think if um, they decided to. Uh, desaturate the ending to the point where the blood looked like custard I think it probably would have been uh, <laughs> it would have been even better 
Um, I think if you imagine that shootout at the end of Taxi Driver to the to the music from Bugsy Malone, <laughs> the kind of piano music. Oh man, I think we found a mashup somewhere that needs to be done. But yeah, <laughs> more, more seriously, it is it is a, an amazing performance, isn't it, by Foster? Yeah, I mean it is. You know, sometimes with child performances, you there's there's kind of a sense I get where you almost feel. Uh, as if there's something dangerous happening with a kid because you're kind of thinking they are being exposed to something you know far just so dark and adult that you wonder that it's going to kind of like mess them up in Mm. some ways and that's one of those performances because there's nothing uh uh there's nothing sort of childish about her performance you know it's this character who's meant to be sort of in a sense world weary and world otherwise but at the same time has kind of this like tremendous vulnerability to it because she's someone who you know is a prostitute and uh you know has all these things sort of things going on in her life and it's a very dangerous way of living but she's also still a girl a, a, a child mm. I, I think that the, the the brilliance of her performance is that she manages to carry the kind of the tension between those two yeah of, of on the outside wanting to be someone who looks tough and like she really has a sense of what's going on where at the same time uh, genuinely needing to be saved even if it is by Travis Fickle yeah absolutely what's your next choice Ed? my next one is uh, and you you praised my pronunciation on Covenger A. Wallace but I'm going to mess this one I'm going to lose all credit here Jean-Pierre Liard in The 400 Blows uh, or to give it its full French title Zip 400 Blows <laughs> Um, which is uh, obviously the, the Francois Truffaut film, uh, yep. sort of semi-autobiographical about a young boy who uh, grows up in, in Paris, is sent away to sort of boarding schools and sort of suffers through that uh, experience um, of sort of growing up as a sort of, in, in a sense, kind of an unwanted child, um, mm. one who's uh, too difficult for the sort of the parents. Um, but also, in a sense, deemed almost too difficult for the state. Yeah. You know, too difficult to be part of the regular and is sent away to sort of restricted boarding schools. And uh, again, the, the, the performance in it is, uh, you know, the phrase we come back to a lot is heartbreaking because um, apparently we don't like happy films. <laughs> um, but it really is. It is really uh, a sort of a strong uh, performance again, like, like Jodie Foster, someone who's kind of projecting uh, a level of toughness kind of beyond their years or as kind of a defense mechanism in a way from the various knockbacks that they've had over the course of their life um which i think uh adds kind of such a, a great poignancy to the fact that you know he's still a kid he's still at the mercy of adults and he still needs someone to kind of love him which mm. uh, is just something that doesn't exist in his life and he's one of cinema's great victims of circumstance because even when he tries to do the right thing, it inevitably goes terribly wrong. So when he writes a, a you know, a beautiful assignment in his class, he's accused of ripping off uh, another writer. When he tries, to, he steals a typewriter, doesn't he, from his dad's office? But when he returns it, he gets caught. Mm. And it, I think he's just he's just a character who really just cannot do right by anyone. Yeah, and I think that's the the great tragedy of him is he's not just that he is is that he uh, loses through his own actions the confidence of everyone around him mm-hmm. but but everyone around him is so in both like in a personal level and sort of a societal level 
so unforgiving that he can't then win it back when he decides he wants to do good. Yeah. In the Home Alone sense as well, there's a great bit where um, he goes to his mate's house and he's been like hidden in his in his mate's house and they just get pissed up, smoke cigars and play backgammon. <laughs> that's what that's how Home Alone would have done it. You know, what I mean? in kind of fifties France. But uh, no, a, a wonderful performance, and and he went on to play the same character at different ages, didn't he? In three or four other films. Yeah, he did it in two more, I think two more features and one short. Uh, the, mm. But the short was when he was uh, twenty, and then the other ones are sort of like late twenties, and I think in his his thirties, uh, he and Truffaut came back and kind of charted the various different stages of of the character Antoine Donnell's uh, life, which. Uh, I think means that we can probably talk about him in future episodes because I think it's a, yeah. it's a really great uh, character, really interesting scenes or the different ages at which he was uh, depicted. Does that mean I'm gonna have to watch three more foreign films? One of them's only 20 minutes long. Oh, that's fair enough. Uh, just for like a little bit, you want to get like kind of cultural and kind of cross-platform on this shit. That reminds me very much of uh, the John Updike Rabbit series of revisiting the same character um, at three points in his kind of life. Uh, kind of varying levels of success yeah um, I've never read any of Dyke is he uh, is, is his kind of approach sort of mirroring his own experiences yeah 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 so like you start off with a uh, character who's you know a faded kind of basketball protege and you know him kind of uh, starting his path onto adulthood and then you could progress through right up to middle age and all the kind of dissatisfaction to go ahead of that and being a parent and things like that I'm disgusted you haven't read John Updike I'm sorry yeah. I, will, I will try to rectify that at some point immediately um, okay. My, okay my next choice is um, I'm going to hop forward a bit of something um Mine are, oh, I've just noticed that mine are weirdly in chronological order that I've listed them. That's the way my mind works, I guess. Um, I'm going to pick uh, Natalie Portman, um, a uh, very successful example of a child actor who went on to uh, great things, uh, Oscar-winning actor, of course, uh, recently. But she did a, a performance in a film post-Leon. Uh, I initially had Leon down, but I changed my mind um, because as great as she is in Leon, I really like her in a film that was made a few years later called Beautiful Girls, a Ted Demi film. Have you seen that, Ed? Uh, no, I haven't seen that one. I've, I've always heard really good things about it. Though. Yeah, imagine Garden State, but not shit. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, it is. It's got it's got a, it's got a dreadful soundtrack, unlike Garden State, which has got a great soundtrack. Um, but it's uh, it's actually you know that idea of a kind of disaffected son coming home and seeing all his childhood friends and all that stuff um, is done brilliantly. And and the main character, uh, played by Timothy Hutton, um, is a kind of. Uh, failed musician who works as a he plays a piano in a kind of cocktail bar um for tips basically and he comes home um and revisits his friends which is a kind of who's who of kind of 90s character actors so like matt dillon's in there michael rapaport's in there uma thurman's in there weirdly rosie o'donnell's in there um but don't let that put you off um but um there's his neighbor is a kind of 13 year old girl played by natalie portman and they have a weird they weirdly kind of fall in love without it ever being sexual or even romantic. He, they're just attracted to each other's personalities because she is someone who is very much wise beyond her years and, and talks in a very kind of eloquent, uh, lyrical way um, about, you know, their situation. She can obviously see he's a kind of a bit of a lost soul and he can obviously see that she's, um, you know, a uh, adult in a child's body. And it, I'm making this sound really wrong, <laughs> but it's not. It's fantastic. And there's, there's a great bit in it where... Like you know, I think Hutton's character acknowledges that you know, in a in a 
perfect world they could just go out and and uh, and you know be together and like she's talking in Shakespearean language at the time and she says her famous line in that which is alas poor Romeo we can't do diddly and <laughs> um, it was just a really great performance a really charming likable performance and and highlights uh, Portman's gift for comedy uh, which she displayed in Your Highness <laughs> years later but no she didn't that's that's a terrible film um, but no I'd recommend seeking that film out um, it's a, it's a jolly good watch. Okay, cool. Well, uh, my next one is uh, Freddie Highmore in Finding Neverland, a Mark, Mark Forster film uh, mm-hmm. about the uh, writing of um, Peter Pan uh, by J.M. Barry, played by uh, Johnny Depp. Um, it's a film that, you know, Mark Forster's kind of a journeyman director. He's worked in a lot of different genres, often to sort of middling effect. Um mm-hmm. Most uh, notably, in terms of uh, sort of badness, uh, on the the Quantum of Solace, the Bond film. Did he do uh, Monsters Ball? Is that him? Yes, he did. Ah, right. Okay, with you. Which uh, was kind of, I think, probably the most sort of critical success he had uh, in in the you know Halle Berry won an Oscar for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in between uh, Monsters Ball, there might have been another one in between, but no Monsters Ball and. Uh, the kite runner he uh, did uh, Finding Neverland and the thing that's really uh, great about um, Finding Neverland for me is uh, Freddie Highmore who plays the son of uh, Kate Winslet's character who's kind of this sort of woman that uh, J.M. Barry uh, forms a close sort of friendship with it's sort of sort of tinged with romance but it's not really romantic because uh, uh, J.M. Barry's um, a widower who's kind of not uh He's not sort of interested in uh, in sex, but he is interested in sort of her and her family, who then go on to form the sort of inspiration for the characters in uh, Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's great about Freddie Heimel's performance in it is that he is uh, incredibly vulnerable and incredibly angry all the way through, and he never feels annoying at that mm. because there it can. When you watch a, a child performer on screen, you can get very annoyed with them if they're angry all the time because you just want to you just want to kind of say you know grow up you know be uh, you know not everything is about you. But because you know his mother is very ill and dying and he's got these kind of conflicted emotions about this guy who seems to be coming in and almost acting as a surrogate father but not really. Uh, he uh, is you know quite angry at, at the world and uh, his performance is very very um, sort of sweet and sort of hard-edged at the same time. Mm. Which is a delicate delicate thing to pull off at a young age. How old was he when he did it? Um, I would say probably about 10, maybe, yeah, even, maybe even younger. That was, was that the film that really kind of, you know, singled him out as a, as a kind of a really good actor? Cause did he get Oscar nominated for that or am I, if I, am I dreaming that? Uh, I don't think he did. But he, it, it was kind of like that. Yeah, he would have been. I oh, would have been uh, twelve in Finding Neverland. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, but that that was kind of like that got a huge amount of critical attention. And then obviously the year afterwards he was in uh, he was in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which was ah, kind, right, of, yes. kind of exposed him to a, a to a, um, a broader world. Uh, and then he was also in A Good Year with Russell Crowe, which he did not. Uh, yeah, let's let's not anyway. talk about that. Um, and currently, you can see him in Bates Motel as Norman Bates. So his career's uh, taken an odd turn. 
Wow, um, is that is that hit? I knew that show was a thing, but I didn't know Freddie Highmore was the was Norman. Yeah, I didn't know that as well until I was like looking up the details on it because it got some really good reviews, and then I was just staggered that it was him. Cause it's I, a really it, peculiar casting. Just, I mean, just physically. Yeah, but yeah, I've seen sort of clips of it, and he does have that sort of slightly uh, uneasy sort of physicality that um, Anthony Perkins had, mm. which also Andrew Garfield has. Andrew Garfield reminds me a lot of Anthony Perkins. And uh, Vince Vaughn comprehensively does not. Yes, um, but you know, I think you know it's a it's a it's a wonderful um, performance by a very sort of young lad who's who, especially sort of at the end of the film, uh, really tugs on the heartstring without it being sappy or saccharine. It feels very sort of honest, which is a very difficult thing to pull off as a kid because with a kid, you know, it, acting is just pretending really you know and pretending is kind of very a shallow sort of thing for fun so to get a performance from a kid where they actually feel as if they're really another person is, is quite extraordinary yeah i mean saccharin and kind of overly cloying is the generally the kinds of reactions that kid actors and kid performances are usually cynically used to kind of elicit i mean something like jerry Maguire is mm. is kind of um spot on but my next choice is the polar opposite of that I am going to pick, controversially, not one, but the entire cast of um, the film City of God. Um, and we can we can just pick the, the kids of the appropriate age because they do follow these kids throughout their uh, childhood up through teenage years to adulthood, uh, those that make it. <laughs> um, but yeah, another example of um, real kids being used... Um, used? Utilised in films um, to get a more natural performance. A film... Uh, co-directed by Fernando someone and uh, someone else uh, and I'm bringing this up because that someone else is a, a female director and she uh, did not get credited um, properly even though she was principally in charge of directing the children and um, do you know about this or am I, just, am I, am I, am I on crack? <laughs> am I no no that's, that's, that's all correct yeah she was that, uh, kind of the ignored kind of figure in it yeah was... and, and the performances that they elicit from those kids is they're truly startling now you, the reason that you could never use actors to tell that story the story of kind of you know the life in the favelas in in kind of brazil and the kind of just the bleak grim existence that, that is of just like daily murder and violence and just you know inescapable horror um would never have worked with with actors with lines would it not even Corey feldman and Corey Haim at the height of their powers Two great kid actors, <laughs> um, but no, you, you no, you, would just, you can't really think of it ever working, could you? No, because that film is entirely dependent on sort of that sense of uh, of, of reality and of authenticity, and of mm. really capturing this sort of uh, hard scrabble existence in what is essentially sort of the Wild West, where yeah. there's no law. Uh, the people who have the power are the people who have the most capacity for carrying out violence. Um, yeah, I think that with sort of uh, actors and performing that way, it just would have been. Uh, I, I don't think it could have been. It would have necessarily been terrible, but I think that film would be a lot less impactful if you didn't get the sense that those were real kids who actually understood and lived that life. Yeah, um, just is Fernando Moraes, who uh, was the uh, director, the co-director was Katia Lund. Um, so, 
will replace that when I, you know, I, that's what I meant when I said what's her name and okay. that bloke. Um, but um, yeah, uh, there's a bit in the film you'll know the bit I'm on about where uh, the the kind of emerging drug kingpin Little Z uh, makes a kid choose who he's going to shoot. Yeah. And that is oh, that's so <laughs> horrible to watch, but the performances are so natural and you kind of what's worse about it is you watch those kids do that and you think oh, I wonder if they've been through something similar like that because you know you just can't act that can you it's just it's just all so natural and that makes it worse when you think about the context yeah and you also get about a certain amount of that at the very end when little C meets his end at uh, the hands of uh, another group of sort of feral kids who mm. uh, you know, sort of like corner him, and he's this guy who's sort of meant to be this big, sort of powerful figure, and then he just gets taken out by these sort of like group of kids who just don't show any sort of remorse from ending another person's life. And I think you can really, uh, you you really get a sense of the sort of the violence, uh, the the violence of that sort of way of living, uh, which is, uh, you know, that that was the thing. The, the, the city of God is a as quite a, an important sort of formative film for me because I think it's one of the first sort of foreign language films that I watched that just completely sort of gripped me and destroyed the kind of the subtitle barrier because mm. it was just so uh, propulsive and violent and uh, you know uh, intense and I think that you know a lot of that goes to the fact that you're watching kids carry out these acts of just this horrendous acts but mm. not being childlike about it there's a hardness and a sort of a, a, sort of a, a, a harshness to it yeah right last choice Ed what is uh, it what are you going to go for I have cheated and put two because it's essentially a sort of a two-hander sort of performance uh, it's and also it's some terrible pronunciation on my part uh, Bertil it's, it's pronounced Feldman and Hayen <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hayen Corey Hayen no um <laughs> Bertil Gouve and Pernilla Alwyn in uh, Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander, which is a film which also started as a life as a, a, a TV series in Sweden about uh, two young children, brother and sister, made fan, named uh, Fanny and Alexander, who uh, at the start of the film they are sort of part of this. They're, they're, they're from a well-to-do sort of family. They've got a very very sort of middle class. They uh, enjoy. Or uh, a not like an overly lavish, but kind of a sort of almost idyll- idyllic childhood in the early part of the 20th century, sort of uh, in the run up to World War One. I, I, mm-hmm. I think it starts in 1907 and ends sort of 1910, 1911. And uh, fairly early on in the story, uh, their father uh, dies, um, and their mother remarries. He marries, uh, she marries a priest uh, who becomes their stepfather. But uh, in here, and they go to live with him. But he has this very strict sort of aesthetic, uh, aesthetic um, lifestyle. You know, sort of it's very, uh, very um, little in terms of way of possessions and, and thrills. And they really struggle with him. Their relationship with him is very, is very, uh, very tense because obviously they're coming from a place of relative privilege. Uh, and he doesn't really make any accommodations to them not really understanding the way of life that he expects them to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's the, the thing that's great about it is the fact that they've got these two kids who you completely believe as um, spoiled brats who kind of grow to understand how important they are to each other, essentially, because they realise that the, the only things that matter 
or their relationship as brother and sister, which um, I which I, I responded to uh, a great deal, and I think it's uh, it's one of Bergman's sort of uh, it's, well, it's it's considered to be Bergman's like last film because it was the last film he made that was released in cinemas. He, he made lots right. of he made lots of films that were aired on television in the years afterwards between. 1984 and, and when he died in uh, 2006 or 2007 but um it's a it's a it's an amazing film and it's kind of carried by these two incredibly young uh sort of precocious kids but who aren't uh then in no way kind of uh, as we were saying earlier they're not kind of like theatrical stage in their performance that it's, it's it's again like the other performances you, you really do kind of believe them they're very real did um I'm not really a huge Bergman fan, and that's just to say that I've seen like two Bergman films. One of them's Persona, the other one is Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. But like, is he someone who uses that more naturalistic approach to the acting? Uh, more as he kind of um, as as he got older, um, I think there's definitely his his early films are quite naturalistic. If you see sort of something like My Summer with Monica, which is has a very sort of raw sort of sensuous feel to it but a lot some of his sort of his comedies are quite stagey um mm. although um, i've often said the only difference between his comedies and his dramas is comedies have like light violin music and his dramas have cellos um, oh, right, okay. otherwise they're more or less the same um but you know he as as he kind of got older he went for sort of a, a raw uh, certainly you can see that in something like um cries and whispers or uh, scenes from a marriage, which is uh, absolutely uh, grueling. Uh, both of which are very grueling films. They're great, but they are not uh, sort of terribly fun experiences. Um, but you can really—he he obviously favoured sort of naturalism and harshness. Uh, sort of when he sort of gets into the sort of the seventies and eighties in his career, and you right. can really see that carrying over into Fanny and Alexander, which also kind of encompasses a lot of other things like his sort of very great cynicism about sort of organized religion which uh, kind of is manifested there by the sort of the priest who's uh, a commitment to a particular lifestyle um, kind of ruins the lives of his new wife and her two children um, who are utterly miserable as a result of having to adhere to his kind of uh, fanatical uh, devotion to, to uh, scripture. This sounds like a fucking laugh riot. It is very, very good. The TV series version of it is particularly uh, great. Um, cool. Right, last choice. I'm going to go for a fairly recent film. Um, I'm going to go for... and I'm going to pick this purely because of my own sense of injustice. Um, and I'm going to pick um, Hayley Steinfeld. Or Steinfeld? No, hang on, that's Steinfeld. Uh, no, I think it's Steinfeld. Cause there's no, Steinfeld? Uh, yeah. Right, okay, Hayley Steinfeld um, for the uh, Coen Brothers True Grit, which um, is yeah a really good film. Um, and also, um, I'm talking about Injustice because she was uh, nominated for Best Supporting Actor Actress at the Oscars that year. Um, but she is the lead of the entire film. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's any other women in it, firstly. Um, and yeah, she is... She is the main character in the film. She is on screen practically for 95% of it um, and is undoubtedly the main character. Why on earth was she marginalised into the uh, supporting actress ghetto? Uh, I don't know. I think it's absolutely uh, insane. It's like when um, 
is basically the same reasoning behind you know Forrest Whitaker being the lead in uh, Last King of Scotland um, because anyone who watches that film knows that he's a supporting character in it but he's mm. the more famous of the two and he's kind of the one doing the kind of the more outrageous and extravagant performance which is kind of the same with I mean like uh, Jeff Bridges doesn't get as big in his performance as Rooster Cogburn as, as Forrest Whitaker did as Idi Amin but he's still kind of you know a mumbly kind of character taking on uh, this character made iconic by John Wayne I think mm. you know you look at that and you think well he's the bigger name so I guess he must be the lead when you're right it's it's Haley's uh, Steinfeld's story mm. you know that character is on screen for almost every minute and the camera follows her and you know everyone it's her drive and her devotion to seeking revenge that is the sort of engine that propels the story yeah I, I, I just really didn't get it that I mean you always do get actresses marginalised in Hollywood like I, the one that springs to mind is that uh, Kim Basinger won best supporting actress for LA Confidential even though she is the female lead in that film mm. Um, but obviously her her screen time is is viewed as supporting, but the, the complete opposite is true of, of Steinfeld. And, and I I've, I've not seen her in anything else. What else has she done? She she had been in a bunch of uh, TV and films and stuff, but before then in sort of small roles. But she's actually not appeared in a theatrical film since then. But she's got four Roger out this year. So right, okay. So she's in the the film version of Ender's Game. She's in a. Uh, a version of Romeo and Juliet which I think is one of the first film versions ever which actually has characters the age of the characters in the play sort of yep. early teens um, yeah so I think she's a, she, she's not been on our screen since then which I think has probably helped her uh, performance kind of gain in uh, gain uh, in, in sort of the memory you know grow in the memory because obviously that's kind of the only thing people really know her for and it's kind of this film where she dominates over um, Jeff Bridges and Matt Damon which you know not many sort of teenage girls could really claim to be able to hold their own against those two people who were both heavyweights really yeah um, she, but yeah, I, I just felt really like awful about it she didn't even make her name onto the poster she doesn't even feature on it it's just like it's, uh, it's a bit hard on her so I thought I'd give her a bit of love and pick her as, as, as in this top ten which of course is the highest honour <laughs> that any could be bespo- bestowed on anyone really um, but yeah um, yeah that's our top ten it was the right one that one yeah I liked it yeah yeah so I think that that's a pretty good place to wrap things up okay uh, if you want to get in contact with me and Joe you can do so uh, at either of our websites mine is a mighty fine blog Joe's is the wooden kimono uh, we're both on twitter I am at EJR Davis with an IES and Joe is at the wooden kimono and uh, we now have the shot reverse shot facebook page um, like it like it now like it and uh, you know come and have a chat with us uh, please leave us a review and a rating on iTunes and, uh, ratings and stuff so if you leave us a review it can really help us expand our audience and get more lovely people listening and interacting with us yeah cool um, we're gonna I don't know if we're gonna do the the next age of man next but we'll, we, we've committed to it now we're saying we're doing a series so we have to follow this one up with uh, adolescence is gonna be the next one I'm really looking forward to that one because there's you know, cinematically, there's an awful lot of. Uh, it's a very rich theme, isn't it? Adolescence. Yeah, I think there's. Uh, yeah, there's there's a huge amount of stuff to talk about uh, in terms of 
sort of sexual awakening, disillusionment, uh, music. I think music's probably quite a big part of it, really, because when you're adolescent, that's when you start really getting into sort of different bands and stuff. So I think that we might be able to draw that in. Uh, yeah, lots of stuff to talk about. Yeah, go. Cool. So until then, um, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thank you.